Hello ladies and gentlemen, today I am with Dr. Mark Oliver, an infectious disease physician at St. Mark's Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah. Dr. Oliver, thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. So uh, before we dive into coronavirus, can you give us a quick background on yourself? Yes, so I've uh, been an infectious disease physician for over 25 years now uh, in the same location for the duration of my practice um, based here in the middle of Salt Lake City. Um, I am what they call a private practitioner, so I see lots of patients both in a clinic setting and in a hospital. I also do a fair amount of administrative work for a few of the hospitals around town and uh, get involved with uh, management of microbiology labs and appropriate use of antibiotics. Um, and occasionally the uh, uh, pandemic that may pop up. <laughs> yeah, sounds like you are the perfect man uh, to talk to at this point in time. So can you tell us about coronavirus, some of the basics of, of coronavirus? Uh, so coronaviruses are uh, a type of virus that has uh, been around for a long time. And uh, there are several strains that have been known to cause human disease, um, at least six to my knowledge. Uh, some of you may recognize the term SARS and MERS. Uh, and those are both coronaviruses that have caused epidemics around the world in prior years. Um, but this is the first coronavirus to cause a true pandemic where uh, almost every country in the world has been um, uh, affected by this particular type of virus. Yeah, so I mean, how every country in the world, how serious is this right now? How big of an issue is this? This is uh, by far the biggest infectious disease challenge that I have faced in my career. And I think a lot of other uh, Healthcare providers and infectious disease physicians would echo that sentiment. All you have to do is get on the news and see uh, the staggering effect that this outbreak has had on the world in terms of total numbers of people affected, uh, hospitalizations, deaths, uh, uh, incredible impact on the world economy, and it's not going away anytime soon. So this is a uh, very serious healthcare problem. Yeah, what? Well, I mean, there's staggering numbers right now uh, with with uh, confirmed cases, deaths. What are some of those numbers? What do they tell us about this? So, as of today, uh, March 26th. March 26th. Uh, we have over 523,000 cases worldwide. Uh, over. 23,000 deaths worldwide, and we have just over 80,000 80, cases in the United States with over 1,000 deaths. Uh, the problem is going to get a lot worse here in the U.S. before it gets better. Um, and again, if you look at certain cities around the country, uh, New York City would be a prime example. They are really struggling right now. They Hospitals are beyond capacity. They don't have enough resources to take care of patients. Um, and so uh, it's really serious in a lot of places throughout the world. And uh, um, no evidence of slowing down in many countries, including the United States. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how is this virus spreading 
so fast. I think it's good for, for people to have an understanding of how this virus is spread, and, and we have pretty good knowledge about that. Um, there's sort of three predominant ways this particular virus is spread that we know of. Number one is what we call droplet spread. And that is if you're within several feet of another individual and they are talking to you or coughing or sneezing, uh, that small particles that come from your mouth or your nose can have viral particles that, that you can then inhale or they can get in through your nose or uh, possibly by your hands touching your face. Um, that's what we call droplet spread. Number two is contact spread. So direct contact with another person, hugging, kissing, shaking hands. We know that the virus can spread directly by that mechanism. And once it finds its way to your mouth uh, or your nose and possibly your eyes, it has an entry into your respiratory tract. Uh, the third way, which we have indirect evidence, but it's hard to know how big a role this plays, is what we call fomite spread. So we know this virus can live uh, on inanimate objects, such as countertops and doorknobs and elevator buttons, and the list goes on and on. And there is definite concern that uh, at least some cases are spread from one person who's infected touching, say, a doorknob, and then another person who's not infected grabbing that same doorknob and then uh, uh, having a meal or scratching their nose or, and, uh, and then somehow inoculating themselves. So that's what we call fomite spread. So those are the three mechanisms by which we think this virus spreads. It really does not spread by the traditional airborne route, which is spread across, um, you know, many feet or uh, uh, floating around in the air. It requires fairly close contact with another person or a fomite uh, to allow uh, transmission of healthy virus. I am grateful it is not spread through air because uh, that would make things even more difficult. So how, how do we know, how, do, how does someone know if they have uh, this, this virus, this disease? Uh, it's a very good question. Um, really, you don't know until you've actually had a test that confirms the diagnosis. And we're now seeing some studies, uh, mostly in other countries, uh, that demonstrate that anywhere from 20 to 30 percent or more of patients who are infected with this virus never develop symptoms or their symptoms are so mild they never seek medical care and never really complain of anything. Uh, in a majority of patients, uh, uh, probably 50, 60 percent uh, will develop mild illness, and that can be fever with or without headache, runny nose, sore throat, cough, um, and sometimes gastrointestinal symptoms. Then about another 10 percent will develop more severe illness where they may require hospitalization with more uh, respiratory issues, shortness of breath, low oxygen levels, pneumonia, and ultimately some people will develop respiratory failure where they have to be on a ventilator and that uh, can lead to death. Um, so again, number of patients uh, never develop symptoms and then a majority of patients will have mild to moderate symptoms and recover uh, without ever needing medical attention. Uh, that's, I, that's concerning in the fact that it seems that a lot of people can be going around living day to day and have no idea that they have this virus and that they're spreading it. 
Uh, I wanted to address uh, something that I've heard a lot from different people, and that's this is only an issue for old people right now, elderly people. Uh, that if you're younger, you shouldn't have to worry about this at all. Uh, there's been new data put out on this. This is maybe not the case. What, yes. What's the info with that? Yeah, it's, that's another good question. And and uh, I want to uh, segue into uh, several sort of misconceptions, I think, out there in the general public and also in the medical community right now as we gather more data. One is you are absolutely right. This is not just an older person's disease. Um, in some areas, uh, uh, there are more people dying under 50 than over 50. Traditionally, it seems to be hitting the older population and those who are immunocompromised. But there are many, many cases of hospitalization and even death in uh, younger people, including in the 20 to 40 age group. I think just yesterday, the youngest uh, death here in the U.S. in Los Angeles was in a 17-year-old male who was otherwise healthy. Wow. So this is affecting everybody. I, I suspect before it's over, we'll see younger kids dying as well. Uh, so it's going to hit every age spectrum and, and for sure is more of an issue in patients um, who are immunosuppressed, patients with underlying chronic heart and lung conditions, um, and... Uh, and the elderly, but all risk or excuse me, all age populations are affected. Uh, a second myth is uh, what I touched on earlier, and that is um, uh, people tend to think that you're not going to spread this virus unless you have symptoms. Well, that just is not true. There are plenty of cases documented around the world of people who have no symptoms at all spreading the infection to others. Um, in addition, uh, in that group that has symptoms, there is often a period of one, two, three, four, five days before developing symptoms when you're still colonized with the virus. And we believe a fair amount of transmission from one person to another is during that asymptomatic period. So recognizing that a lot of infection uh, is being spread by people who have absolutely no symptoms is an important concept in this pandemic. Um, the third and maybe most important misconception, I, I think we're slowly coming around, but uh, I think a lot of folks still are not um, accepting the severity of this problem. Um, it's not slowing down anytime soon, and uh, the number of cases are really exploding, and especially here in the U.S., I predict in the next few days we will overtake Italy and China and have the largest number of uh, cases, documented cases in the world. And um, uh, you can already see that uh, hospitals in other countries, in Spain, in Italy, in France, and uh, here in the U.S., in New York City, the healthcare system is overloaded. There are not enough uh, hospital rooms. There are not enough ICU beds to take care of patients properly. And uh, military-type triage hospitals are being built as we speak many places around the country. And again, uh, this is going to play over and over again in multiple cities throughout the country uh, over the next several months, probably. That's, that's crazy to even fathom just everything that's happening. And uh, I think it says a lot about how, uh, how we, we all need to play a role individually uh, in helping to not spread it. Uh, so one 
issue I've read I've read about and and we've talked about is the is testing and the lack of testing available in our country uh, and also all around the world. What what is this what is this issue with testing? Yeah, so it's uh, multifactorial, and that's an area I personally have spent a lot of time in the past few weeks. Um, uh, with different testing facilities and trying to get more rapid testing and a larger volume of testing. Uh, I think uh, the U.S. as a whole has um, underperformed in this area, especially compared to some other countries, uh, including China and South Korea. Uh, we really need to be able to test a larger volume of patients and we need more rapid testing. Currently, most of the tests used across the country take one to two days to get results. There are some commercially available products that are just being rolled out this week and hopefully more to come in the next few weeks uh, that can get a result within 45 minutes. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm fearful that some of that is, is gonna be coming a little too late. We really need to be aggressively testing and containing people now. And uh, by the time we have these more rapid tests, the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. Um, and uh, they will still be very useful, but a little late in coming. There have been lots of issues with um, uh, supply and demand. Uh, so lots of companies are out there with well-validated tests, um, but end up with short supply of one of the reagents they need, or in some cases, there's not enough staff to run uh, RNA extraction, which is a fairly sophisticated uh, technique. Uh, that you can't just train a person and have them up and doing it in a day or two. Um, and then even the, the swabs, so the test kits that we use right here in Utah, that's becoming a limited resource. So we actually have the capability to do maybe a few thousand tests a day at one of the larger labs in Salt Lake, but we have three or 400 sample kits available for at least the next week. So Again, shortage of supply, shortage of man-woman power have been limiting steps. Uh, the good news is that every few days a new company comes online that has a new product, and so hopefully we can be more aggressive uh, with testing as uh, in the near future. <clears throat> yeah, that is good news. I, I think about some other countries that have been ahead of the game on testing. Iceland uh, had been testing large numbers of people, tests like 9,000 something and only 48 came back positive uh so just huge benefit to be able to have everyone else not have to worry about spreading the virus having the virus uh, and then also south korea's numbers have dropped dramatically since they've been testing thousands of people each day so i i, I, I see that issue and definitely i would hope testing be will become more available uh, and widespread as soon as possible um, and so you'd mentioned earlier, you talked about healthcare systems uh, being overwhelmed. Uh, we're starting to see that in New York. How, what can we do to avoid that or sustain, be able to, to get through that? So sort of uh, an action plan for right now is uh, primarily public health, in my opinion. So there are some pharmaceuticals out there that are showing some promise, but, but nothing that looks like a true cure. We may be able to save some lives with some of these drugs like um, uh, hydroxychloroquine and 
remdesivir, uh, but I'm not seeing any miracle drugs anywhere on the close horizon. In addition, there are several companies working furiously on vaccines, but those are, you know, at best six to 12 months away. So we really can't hold out um, for a magic bullet in that arena, in my opinion. What we need to do now is shut this virus down. So the image I would like for everyone to try and think about is the distancing phenomena. So if all of us in a community, in a state, in a country could freeze and socially distance six feet for four weeks, we would completely shut down the virus. All right. So just think about that image. Now, obviously, we can't freeze in place for four weeks but we need to get as close as possible to that. I believe we need to, um, again, in a community, in a state, at a federal level, we need to lock down. We need to uh, keep people at home except for essentials like uh, going out and getting groceries or for us in healthcare, obviously we have to go in and take care of sick patients and you know our basic infrastructure has to continue on. So. Uh, absolute necessity jobs would continue, uh, but we need to do a much better job of social distancing, six feet apart, and just staying at home and staying out of public places. Now, in the, so that's one important concept. Number two is if you do have to go out in public and interact with other people and have to be closer than six feet or say you have to touch other people, well, then you wear a mask and you bring some hand sanitizer and you wash every time you contact another person. Um, in addition, the whole fomite spread concept, uh, let's say you go into a grocery store and you give the grocery clerk your credit card, they grab it, they punch in the numbers, they give it back to you, and now possibly you've gotten COVID from an infected uh, checker who doesn't even know she's sick, but has had contact with, I don't know, 50 people in one day. So uh, cleaning surfaces, lots of hand washing, wearing a mask if you're going to be closer than six feet from someone else. I, I firmly believe that we as, uh, as uh, citizens can do that meticulously and thoughtfully we could shut down this virus literally in a four-week period. It's, it's um, I think it's a hurdle that we can overcome, and I'd like to see more support from our local and state and federal uh, public health departments to get that message across. I, I think public health officials could actually be helping us to mask properly and hand wash properly. I know there's a lot of educational pieces out there. I just think we need to reinforce this and do a better job. If we do it properly for a short period of time, we can shut this virus down. If we do it improperly, it's gonna go on for months and months and maybe longer. And if we don't do anything, we're really gonna overwhelm our healthcare system all over the country and lots of people are gonna die that probably would not uh, otherwise need to die. That, that's a great point to make at the end uh, because I've heard a lot of people say this whole quarantine their argument is the 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 negative impacts economically and on individuals losing jobs etc outweighs the benefits of quarantining um what, what is your response to that yeah so my argument there is it's better to suck it up right now and go through a painful uh short period of time 
with unemployment and um, uh, the suffering that goes along with that and stomp this virus now. I think if we don't do these radical changes in our day-to-day -day life, uh, we are going to have uh, probably more unemployment, more damage to the economy over a longer period of time. Now is the time to be aggressive and step it up. I mean, we've, we've seen some success stories in some other countries like South Korea, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, even China has done a pretty good job of really slowing the virus dramatically, and that's by aggressive testing and isolating individuals who are infected. And so there are models in other countries of success, and I think uh, we have that capacity here in the U.S. as well, but I think it requires us jumping all over this now so that we don't prolong a uh, worsening pandemic. I, I agree there. To clarify, so stop it now, short-term loss for long-term gain economically, and you get to save thousands of lives, potentially. Okay, I wanted to ask about testing, and because just yesterday they passed the bill having all the money uh, come from the federal government. Are these industries that are making testing available to be able, th these testing available would they benefit substantially from extra funding? Because uh, the reason I ask this is I saw a very low amount go towards hospitals and healthcare relative to the rest of where the money was being distributed. I mean, how much could these, is it plausible that more money to these testing sites would improve testing or? Yes, I, I think so, especially when sometimes the limitation uh, is not the technology, but it's uh, resources, it's reagents, it's testing kits, it's employees to run the tests. So uh, absolutely, if you put more money into the projects, uh, it's gonna ramp up much more quickly. And I'm a big proponent of aggressive testing, and that's gonna continue into the future. Even if we, even once we uh, stem the current pandemic, this uh, virus, I think, is going to be around for a while to come, and we're going to see continued activity on and off, I don't know, maybe for years to come. And so if we can do aggressive spot testing and know a diagnosis immediately and quarantine people right when they're diagnosed, it will help immensely in the future to uh, shut down future outbreaks. Um, yeah. That's positive to hear. And yeah, I in hindsight, it's unfortunate that not as much money went to healthcare, but we can only hope in the future uh, that more of it will go that way. Uh, I did want to ask about some of the drug uh, trials that they're doing um, because I read that most of these clinical trials won't finish until April or May at the soonest. What What are we doing now to treat uh, to treat patients? Uh, so. I personally have not, I've only been involved with the treatment of one uh, COVID patient. So a lot of this is uh, from speaking with many of my colleagues and reviewing some of the literature. So uh, I think the sort of go-to drug for severe illness right now, so these are patients with severe respiratory illness in the hospital on oxygen, uh, sometimes on ventilators, uh, remdesivir is uh, the drug that looks to be most promising, but it is there's only one manufacturer and it is in very short supply, and it's a very lengthy process to actually get that drug. Uh, I know it is uh, being manufactured at a furious pace 
but it is a very limited resource right now. And uh, we just don't know how efficacious that drug is going to be. Again, ongoing trials, we may not have any decent answers for several months. Um, another medication that has, uh, there's some published literature on now and some fairly good sized trials is hydroxychloroquine, which is a derivative of uh, chloroquine, which used to be used for malaria. Hydroxychloroquine, the good news about this drug is there's a fairly large supply because it's used for a number of other uh, illnesses, uh, including rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and uh, some other connective tissue disease disorders. Um, that drug looks like it does have some efficacy uh, either as an antiviral and or as an anti-inflammatory. And again, the trials are early, but there's some encouraging data that we may be able to improve outcomes and save some lives with that drug. There are also trials with combinations of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, which is also a fairly commonly used antibiotic. So those are drugs that are more readily available than remdesivir. Again, my overall impression is we are months away from knowing what the best treatment, excuse me, we are months away from knowing if any of these drugs truly have a statistically significant benefit. Um, and uh, supply and demand is always gonna be an issue in a disease that is so prevalent as this. So I'm not holding out high hopes anytime in the immediate future um, for a cure there. Wonderful, well, it's good to hear that there are uh, trials being done and, and uh, potential to treat this unfortunate pandemic. Uh, well, Dr. Oliver, thanks so much. I think we've covered coronavirus entirely. Are there any other things that come to mind before we wrap this up? No, and I just hope that uh, someday soon we'll look back on this and remember it and um, hope for a good outcome in the not too distant future. Thank you. I love it. Thanks so much. All right.